Hey, Merry Christmas, Christ Church. Hope you all have had just an incredible weekend with family and friends, that you got to open some good gifts, that you got to share some, some gifts and meals and whatnot with friends and family. So one of the things I love about this time of year are nativity sets. I've always loved nativity sets, uh, love them on lawns and in bathrobe pageants and on Christmas cards. I love living nativity sets. I don't know if any of you have been to the glory of Christmas. You know, they have like live camels, which is very cool. I think next year we should get live camels here in our sanctuary. It'd be awesome. But I wanted to share a couple of the, our favorite family nativity sets. So uh, this first one is made from gourds, and it was picked up by my sister-in-law in Albuquerque, New Mexico at a farmer's market, and she gave this to us. So Summer, thank you if you're watching. And then next to that is actually a really cool uh, set that my wife Alicia picked up when she was in Kenya, and it's made from corn husks, and it's just very cool. You know, I, you know, I think, you know, with all of our nativity sets and ornaments and all this stuff, sometimes I think because, you know, Christmas for us can become kind of sanitized and maybe romanticized and commercialized and all of that, that we can miss the profundity and the depth and the real meaning of what's going on in these first century events. And so I want to invite you to enter back into the story with me afresh today and just reflect with me on the beauty and mystery of Christmas. And I want to do that by, by just pointing your attention just to one little phrase in Luke chapter 2, and it says this. Uh, this is, you know, the, the shepherds are out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night, and then lo, an angel of the Lord appears uh, to them, and the glory of the Lord shows round about them, and they're so afraid. And then the angel says to them this. He's, they, they say, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. I want to reflect with you on this, this sign that he talks about. He says, this shall be a sign for you. You shall find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And I find this phrase kind of curious because what is a sign anyway? You know, a sign typically is something miraculous, something divine that is supposed to carry meaning and point us to something. And so, for example, you remember in the Old Testament, Moses' staff was a sign to Pharaoh. He came in and said, let my people go. And he throws the staff down. And as a sign, it turns to a snake to show them that he is serious and his message is from God. You know, or maybe uh, if you're thinking of uh, asking some, some, you know, girl to marry you, you might walk outside and ask God for a sign. Should I ask her? And then there her face is up in the clouds and it's miraculous and it's spectacular. You think it means I need to ask her to marry me, you know? Well, what, what is it that's miraculous and surprising about the child being born and lying in a manger? And it's curious, like, why is that a sign and what kind of meaning does that carry? And, and I want to reflect with you on that question, you know, because you would think like a, a choir of angels in the night sky would be sign enough that this is a message from God. Why is the manger a sign? And to answer that question, I want to invite you just to kind of answer back into the story a bit. In Luke chapter 2, it says this, In the days of Caesar Augustus, a decree went out that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And the world went out to be registered, each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So Nazareth is about 90 miles from Bethlehem. It's a two and a half hour journey by car, but they're not traveling by car. They're on foot or they're on donkey or whatever. And uh, so this is a long, arduous journey. You know, uh, people being attacked and robbed on that journey was not infrequent. And it was hard. I mean, these were difficult times. And so why would you, if you're Joseph, take your pregnant wife on a 90-mile journey across a dangerous desert? Well, the answer is, is because he had to. And he had to because the military power of the day decreed that he must in order to count them to know what their tax base was. And so Joseph isn't doing this by choice. He's doing it because he's oppressed and he's part of an oppressed people and they do what they're told to do. Well, as the story goes on, it says, and while they were there, that is in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and lied him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So we need to talk a little bit about kind of the, the scenario, the picture that's happening right here. Because I think in our own imaginations, we think about Joseph arriving in Bethlehem and uh, Mary is going into labor. And so he's frantically moving from in to in saying, can you give me a place to stay, please? You know, and the mean innkeeper says, there's no room for you here, and slams the door, and he goes to the next one and the next one. Finally, he winds up in this tumble-down savior, and because there's no other options, uh, they give birth, you know, with the cows around them, you know, and, and so he wraps up the baby and lies him in swaddling clothes, and we think, it's so unique and so special and so strange, you know. But what's interesting is that that picture is probably not accurate because... In, um, in the text, it says there's no place for them in the inn. And actually, that word that's translated in is uh, the word kataluma. And that word, it can be translated in at times, but it's not the usual way it's translated. Usually, the way it's translated is as uh, uh, to describe the guest quarters in a basic peasant family home. And so a little uh, background for you. A peasant home was divided into two stories. Typically, uh, show you an image here. Uh, on the first story was the living quarters. They would sleep upstairs. Usually there was a little room adjacent to the main sleeping area where your guests would sleep. And then downstairs was where the work of the home took place. They would cook, they would clean. Sometimes they would bring their animals in at night uh, to bring added warmth to the house. And as probably what's happening here, what it's, it's describing is Joseph goes to his ancestral home in Bethlehem goes maybe to some extended family members who, of course, are going to show hospitality to uh, this family member who's got a pregnant wife. They go there. Maybe somebody was already staying up in the guest quarters, and so they had to sleep downstairs and there with the animals and, uh, you know, where they would wrap the baby. She would give birth and, and um, uh, you know, put them in the trough. Now, if what you are imagining at this point is a small, cramped living space with, uh, it's dirty, it's not sanitary, there's lot, like more family members than can fit in the house or they're like kind of crammed in. If that's what you're imagining, then you're probably getting the picture. 
And what we think, or at least what I think, is only under the most unusual and unpredictable and undesirable set of circumstances would I ever want my wife to give birth to one of my kids in such an unsanitary, you know, crowded place that lacked utter privacy, you know. But you know what the, the, the shepherds would think when they heard this? Is that's just the kind of place where I was born. You know, they too, no doubt, were born in a small, cramped living space that was not private. There was no medical professionals around. And, um, and, and they probably thought, you mean the, 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 the king of everything is going to be born into the kind of living place that I was born into? What kind of king is this? And I think this is what the sign is for them. This is the unusual thing, is that the king of glory is being born in such a usual, common place. And what is this a sign of? Well, I want to suggest for you this Christmas, it's a sign of at least two things. And this is so incredibly meaningful and powerful. And if you let this get in you, this truth, and you live out of this, it could change how you live this next year. Number one, this sign is intended to point us to the solidarity of God. You know, I think one of the things I love about these particular manger sets is that they're made with such base and kind of common materials. Gourds would oftentimes be dried and just thrown out. Uh, corn husks, of course, very common, very accessible to the poor. And I love the idea that the way they are incarnating, as it were, the story of Christmas is by putting it in the context of such base and common materials. Because I think this is the reality. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when he moved into the neighborhood, he didn't move into the palace where all the rich people, he moved in among the poor and the powerless. And so this is a sign of God's solidarity. His solidarity with who? Well, with people who are weak and on the margins, who are very common. You know, I know some of you might think, like, I'm so common and I'm so ordinary. You know, you might look about all, all the extraordinary people out there, you know, and think, like, I just don't have that. Maybe you feel a little bit down on yourself. But listen, God enters into the common and the ordinary so that he might be with and for the common and the ordinary. You know, I heard this last week about a story of a family in our church who was looking for, they, they because of a very harsh set of circumstances, have been looking for a place to live. And um, deadlines are coming up. They need a home. And this, in many respects, is the, is the place that Jesus was born into, into a family like that, who lacked means, who ra- lacked resources. This is the God of as uh, Howard Thurman, a great theologian from the early part of the 20th century called, he called Jesus the God of the disinherited. He is the God who is with those who are on the margins, who are with the poor. This is a God who is in solidarity with us. You know, I was listening to a talk by a sociologist named Brene Brown. She was contrasting sympathy with empathy. And she said, a sympathetic person uh, looks at you when you're down in a ditch and looks over the edge and says, oh, I'm so sorry that that's happening to you, you know? And uh, she contrasts that with an empathetic person who actually goes down into the ditch and sits alongside of you. And this is the God who goes down into the ditch along, the, along with those who are common and on the margins and who are oppressed. And he care, he's with us there. And so number one, the manger is a sign of God's solidarity. 
But number two, it's not only a sign of the solidarity of God. Secondly, it's a sign of the vulnerability of God. Did you notice, uh, you know, in, in the text, both in the description of Jesus at birth and then the description to the angels or of the angels, it says he would be wrapped in swaddling clothes. And it's interesting because there's such an economy of language in describing the birth of Jesus. It's, it's, it's told in such concise language. And so to repeat the same phrase twice is unusual and it's intended to catch our attention. And uh, scholars who study this text have noted that if you go a little bit further in the Gospel of Luke, you almost certainly find the place that Luke is intending to like catch our attention and take us towards. And that's at the end of the Gospel where the phrase of uh, a body being wrapped is described again. Only there it is wrapped, not in uh, swaddling clothes, but in grave clothes. And the body is not the newborn baby, it is the now dead and crucified body of Jesus. And so here in the manger, we're getting a sign that's intending to point us toward the cross, as if to say, this is why I have come into the world. This is why I am with and for the common and the poor and those on the margins, so that I might live among you and at the end of my life, bear in my own body what you deserve, your sin, your judgment, your God forsakenness, so that I might embrace death so that you can know life. Christ was born a living, vibrant little baby who was vulnerable, who was weak, who was needy, so that ultimately at the end of his life, he might become weak and vulnerable and needy, given his life so that you and I might be healed and rescued and made new. And so here's the truth that we're pointed to in the manger. And I want you to think about this. Every time you look at a manger scene, every time you, you consider once again kind of like these beautiful, mysterious, and profound images of the first holy family. Think of it, this is a sign of God's solidarity and God's vulnerability. This is a God who is with us and who, a God who has given everything for us. And may that news this Christmas warm your hearts, may it inspire you, and may it lead you into a whole new way of living in this world. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this great and profound mystery of Christmas. Make this truth live in our lives, we pray. Make these truths new and fresh in our imagination and transform us by the truth of Christmas. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, the word who became flesh to dwell among us. Amen.